Hello, welcome to Exploring Mental Illness, everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask. I'm here with Carrie Ballou from Fuller Hospital. My name is Derek Molhan, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Carrie, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Excellent. How are you doing today? Hey, you know, uh, every day is a good day that you're on the side of the grass. Oh, I know? like that. It's, it's always it's always a good thing. Um, we've got a great guest today who I'd like you to introduce. Um, we're going to be talking about anxiety disorders today, something that I know all too much about. And I am here as a sufferer of mental illness, so I'm trying to give a, a face to mental illness, not being afraid to talk about it and letting it get out in the open because it's nothing to be embarrassed about. If you could introduce our guest, very excited to have her here today. This is going to be, this should be a really good uh Good discussion. Absolutely. So I am pleased to introduce Melissa Holcomb. She is our Director of Clinical Services here at Fuller Hospital. Melissa's been with us for a little over a year now. And Melissa, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. So Melissa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in mental health? Sure. So I am a licensed clinical social worker. I received my bachelor's degree in psychology and then uh, went on to get my master's in social work at Rhode Island College. I've worked in a variety of settings that treat different populations suffering from mental illness, from community mental health centers to school settings to psychiatric hospitals and emergency rooms in a general hospital. So how about your experience working in the inpatient setting? As that sounds like it's your more recent experience. You came from a hospital system out of Rhode Island. Correct. And what was your role there again? I was the manager of outpatient behavioral health services. So I was in charge of two psychiatric emergency departments where patients would come in that were feeling suicidal, anxious, depressed, um, suffering from substance abuse issues and we would assess them and refer them to the appropriate facility for, for treatment. Um, I also worked in our outpatient partial hospitalization programs that focus on short-term intensive therapy. There's many definitions of anxiety and symptoms associated with anxiety. Yes. As someone who suffers from it, could you, could you um, enlighten us about the definitions and some of the types of anxiety disorders that are out there? Because I know that when I was diagnosed, it was, you know, anxiety and panic attacks, which I still suffer from, but I've gotten them under control. Uh, there's generalized anxiety. You know, can you, can you delve into that a little bit for us? Sure. So anxiety can be defined as your body's natural response to stress. It is a feeling of fear and apprehension of what's to come. So anxiety rooted in stress is commonly known as a fight or flight response, which many people typically hear. It is the physical and emotional response to real or perceived danger. So many people think anxiety is always a bad thing, but this fight or flight response is what helps us in difficult situations. So for example, you might be anxious when faced with a problem at work or before taking a test or making an important decision. It's because we are concerned about our children's safety, for example, that we watch them more closely when they're at the beach, for example, or that we ensure we put our seatbelt on when getting in the car. These kinds of concerns keep us aware and alert, but don't interfere with our daily living in any way. Anxiety can become a problem for people when it's constant, overwhelming, and it interferes with your relationships and daily activities. At that point, there's question if there is an actual anxiety disorder present. 
And I'm not sure if you know this, but anxiety disorders are actually the most common psychiatric illness affecting both children and adults. It's estimated that 44 million Americans, about 18% of the population, suffer from anxiety disorders. And about only one third of those actually receive treatment. So it sounds like, Melissa, from what you're telling us, in some ways, our anxiety, our fight or flight response, can almost be like our superpower. Correct. Right? So we can, use it, we can use it for good, but it can also backfire on us. Correct. My anxiety disorder kept me in the house one time for nine months. And that's when I was diagnosed with, you know, serious anxiety. And, and my fight, I didn't fight, I flighted. And I was what they call a frequent flyer at the hospital. I called the ambulance every single day. I thought I was going to die. My dad died of a heart attack at 48. Every ache and pain I got, I thought I was having a heart attack. The thing that really upsets me is, you know, they showed the little A, Abilify guy, hey, you know what? General anxiety, just take this. But it's a lot of hard work, right? I mean, it's taken me 22 years to get a hold of my anxiety. And I don't worry about dying anymore. It's just stuff. It took me 20 years to get through. And now my anxieties are everyday anxieties, you know, finding a full-time job, getting married, having kids, which I think is a good thing. But that's stuff I should have been worrying about 20 years ago. But I guess better late than never, right? Absolutely. And it's interesting you say you just had the flight response. But I would ask you, was the fight part of it what was going on in your mind? And maybe you weren't realizing that that fight response was the thoughts in your mind that were affecting the way you handled life situations. It was get to the hospital. I don't want to die. And then I started realizing as I went through my therapy. I mean, I was in intense therapy. I was in Butler Hospital in Rhode Island for a while. I still see a therapist over there. I see a psychologist. But now, instead of the flight, it's the fight. The first thing I do is check my blood sugars. And it's a, the, the fight is a, a matter of deduction. And then if I realize that it's you know an anxiety or a panic attack, then I can say, all right, it's the same old stuff. It may seem different because, I mean, I haven't had a real panic attack in about four or five years now. Same thing with an anxiety attack where it's actually, I've actually had to take a pill for it. Mm-hmm. I guess my fight is deductive reasoning. Is it a heart attack? No. Is it my blood sugars? No. Okay. And by the time I'm done deducing, because my mind is somewhere else deducing what this is, it's gone. I always used to focus on why is this happening also? You can't wonder why it's happening. You just, okay, it's happening, it's uncomfortable, get through it. Sounds like the education piece of understanding anxiety and how it affects the body has been instrumental in you being able to manage this successfully. Oh, very much so. I mean, I was on eight meds, eight different meds for my anxiety, my panic, and my depression. And now for all of those, I'm down to two. Wow. You know, it's an interesting comparison to think about diabetes and anxiety, right? Because diabetes is a condition that you have to manage. It's not going to go away. It's not curable, but it's treatable. So just like medical conditions, we have to prepare. It's the same thing with mental illness. If you suffer from anxiety and you're going into a stressful situation, knowing what may help, what strategies are you going to use to deal with that? And sometimes just being prepared lessens your anxiety. And this realistically, anybody who has any sort of chronic uh, diabetic issues, um, such as a type uh, type two or type one, type one, they have to be educated, right? Correct. They spend their entire lives being educated about their chronic illness and how to manage it. And so you're right. What's the difference between anxiety and diabetes? 
many of the symptoms of anxiety manifest in physiological symptoms. And people that aren't educated may think something's physically wrong with them, which is why I always recommend that someone that's really struggling starts with their primary care physician. We should be going to them every year, getting routine blood work, and talk to your doctor about what your symptoms are and make sure there's nothing physical wrong with you, and then you can move on to different types of treatment. And even though anxiety starts in the brain, I think some people have the stigma out there that, well, diabetes is measurable. Diabetes is a medical condition. Anxiety is all in your head. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really important for our listeners and for our communities to know is that mental health and mental illness is just as palpable and is just as life-altering as any medical condition. Absolutely. So, Melissa, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the types of anxiety disorders? Sure. Um, I, I think it's important to know that anxiety disorders are a group of conditions rather than one single disorder. Symptoms can look very different from one person to the next. One individual may suffer from an intense anxiety attack that strikes without warning, while another gets very panicky at a specific situation, such as going to a party in social situations. Someone else may have a disabling fear of driving or uncontrollable intrusive thoughts, yet another may live in a constant state of tension worrying about anything and everything. But despite all the different forms, all anxiety disorders elicit an intense fear or anxiety out of proportion to the situation at hand. So when you think about the different types, so we have generalized anxiety disorder, which is constant worries and fear that distract you from your day-to-day activities. People with generalized anxiety disorder are chronic worry warts who feel anxious nearly all the time, though they might not know why they're feeling that way. Anxiety related to generalized anxiety disorder often shows up as physical symptoms like insomnia, stomach upset, restlessness, and fatigue. There's also uh, panic disorders, which is characterized by repeated unexpected panic attacks, which also have a lot of physical symptoms that accompany them. Those are worse than, I mean, panic, I mean, it goes from general anxiety to an anxiety attack to a panic attack. I mean, that's the root, and the panic attack is, is one of the worst. I know that I had anticipatory anxiety for a while, mm-hmm. anticipating, you know, if I go out, I'm going to have an anxiety attack, so I wouldn't go out. Right. I had an anxiety attack at the mall. I'm not going to the mall. And that's one of the other things that people need to know is you can't avoid places where you've had these these episodes or else, yeah, you're going to wind up in your house forever. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So we talked about generalized anxiety, panic disorder. What are some other types of common anxiety disorders? So there's obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a type of anxiety disorder. And that's really characterized by unwanted thoughts or behaviors that seem impossible to stop or control. If you have OCD, you may be troubled by obsessions such as recurring worry that you forgot to turn off the oven or that you may hurt someone. And they kind of monopolize your thought process. And in turn, there are behaviors that become compulsive to manage the obsessions that are happening in your mind. So they're almost like a way to be able to ease the anxiety. You've convinced yourself that you have to do A, B, C, or D in order to either prevent anxiety or to address your anxiety. Exactly. Other anxiety disorders are phobias, something very specific that your anxiety is focused around, such as some people are really afraid of spiders. And if the thought that they may encounter a spider can be enough to prevent them from leaving the house. 
their social anxiety disorders um, that really focus around social situations. And this can lead to agoraphobia, which is fear of leaving the house because they become so anxious and their mind is so focused on all the things that could happen wrong when they go outside that they lose the desire to even want to because of the what ifs. Uh, other types of anxiety disorders are post-traumatic stress disorder, which is extreme anxiety that usually happens after a traumatic event. So, you know, you hear of war veterans that suffer from PTSD because of the trauma they've experienced and they're kind of reliving it in their mind day after day and it affects their ability to function in society. Quick question for, for you, Derek. Would you, did you have anxiety before your father passed away suddenly? I did. My psychologist, uh, we did a little regression therapy. And I had panic attacks all my life. But when you're a kid, you don't know what they are. You know, you just kind of, you just kind of blow them off. And I have, you know, from as early as six years old, I remember having my first panic attack. But when my dad died, and as you get older, you realize as the panic hits you and the anxiety hits you, you know, it could be a lot more things. My dad died of a heart attack, so I'm thinking it's a heart attack or a stroke. And one of the worst things that happened to me was my, like, two of my favorite shows on TV was House and ER. I literally had to stop watching these because House would be like, oh, he's got this, this, this. And I'm like, I got that, I got that. I got, oh, geez, I got to call Dr. House. And then I would watch ER on Thursday night and they'd have these people coming in. I'm just like, oh, I got all that stuff, 911. Hey, guess, it's Derek. You want to come down and check me out? So, yeah, I mean, I've had it all my life where you have to get it under control. I have old written notebook logs of my earliest after my dad died because they told me to write down things. And it would start having a panic attack, afraid to die from a heart attack, afraid to die. And then all the way at the end, it would be just watch the news. A media might hit the earth in 10 years. And that's how crazy it got. That's how the mind, it snowballs and you can't stop it. I went from being afraid to die about worrying about a, a meteorite that might hit the earth 10 years from now. It was ludicrous. But in that time, you think that that's a, that's a real possibility. One of the other things I wanted to just tell you about was when I first found out I had type 2 diabetes and I had my anxiety problems, anxiety and panic can cause your blood levels, your blood sugars to go high. And I didn't know that. So I was checking my blood sugars. I wasn't having anxiety, but I checked my blood sugars and they were really high. I was a little anxious. And what I did was I took some insulin. And then when I calmed down, dropped like a brick, had to go, it went down to 32, which is extremely dangerous. So I had to go to the, um, to the ER and then they told me, yeah, you know, your anxiety can really affect your blood sugars um, as, as well as it, it can affect everything else. I mean, there's, there's so many things that it can affect your concentration. It can affect your libido. It can affect anything and everything. And I think that's why education is more important than meds. I had to get put on meds. Um, but like I said, you can wean yourself off the meds that you don't really need anymore because your education. It's Listen, it's still a chemical imbalance. It can't be cured. It can only be controlled. Do I still have panic attacks? Yes. Do I have them frequently? No. Maybe once every three or four years or if something really bad happens to me. Do I have anxiety? I have anxiety every day, but it's not worrying about dying anymore. Like I said, it's, it's common things that everybody worries about, money and stuff like that. It just, it gets exasperated a little bit because of the disorder. That's where I have to take my thoughts, go back to the notepad, compartmentalize, calm myself down. And I think that's, that's a really important piece is finding what works for you. A strategy that works for you might not work for me. No. Um, and understanding what your triggers are and 
So there are there are many ways to address anxiety. I think recognizing that you're struggling with it is is absolutely the first step, like many things in life. Um, you have to remember that it's normal to feel anxious. It's when your worries and fears are preventing you to live the life that you want to live. That's when you need to seek help. And I don't believe that medication should be the first step. I believe going to your general practitioner and making sure there's no medical, physical reason why you're having these symptoms. If that doesn't work, I always suggest some self-help strategies. If you're anxious because you have an overly demanding schedule, you don't have a good night's sleep most nights, there's a lot of pressure at work, or you drink too much caffeine, you really need to look at your lifestyle and say, what are the things that I do every day that may not be the most healthy that are really contributing to my anxiety? So trying to live a healthier lifestyle, keeping in mind what things make your anxiety greater. So if you realize I didn't sleep well last night and today I'm feeling more anxious than ever, I would say for you, sleep is very important and you need to make sure you have enough sleep because you know what the next day will be like. While self-help coping strategies are very effective, if your worries and fears and anxiety attacks are so great that they're causing extreme distress, it's important to seek professional help. Um, I always recommend starting with therapy, one-on-one -on -one talk therapy with an outpatient therapist to really look at your specific symptoms of anxiety. Because like I said earlier, it's, it's not the same for anyone. And a lot of times there are things that have happened in our life that have kind of led up to anxiety disorders. So really looking at all the way back from childhood, how you dealt with situations when your anxiety seemed to increase and become a problem in your life. The, the way that you described it, I mean, that's exactly what happened with me. My, my doctor wouldn't give me any meds until I got a full checkup. And I think, you know, education is, is key. But for people who don't understand anxiety or panic, I always tell them, they'll, you know, calm down. All right, thanks, doctor. You know. That doesn't make anyone feel better. No, no. You know, you know, calm down. Or, you know, if you're depressed, well, cheer up. Well, no, thanks. You know, go. Um, doctor Phil's down the hall. Thanks. You know, I think everybody has had a, a point in their life where they've gotten to a near-miss car accident and their heart is pounding. And if anybody's ever had that happen or they've, they've crossed the street and almost got hit by a car and you've got that rush of adrenaline, think of that like times a thousand. And there's your anxiety and, and, and your panic attack. The first book I bought about panic disorders, and I will never forget this, on page 27, and I highlighted it, no one has ever died from a panic attack. That is true. And that's, that's a comforting thought. No one has ever died from a panic attack. It, it's funny to hear everything that... that that Melissa had to say, because that's how I went right by the book and any type of anxiety, because people don't know what's going on. And most of them think, you know, I'm having a heart attack or I'm having a stroke. I think that's, would you say that's the most common thought that people have? Absolutely. If you don't really understand what's happening to you in your body, of, of course you could be concerned. Something major could be, could be wrong. And then I think most people start worrying about worrying. So they're worrying about the fact that they're worried that something may happen. And before you know it, their thoughts, it's this circular pattern of just, I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this. What's going to happen to me? They can't really get out of their own way. Well, they think they're broke and they can't be fixed. I thought that a lot, that I was a broken person. 
I can't be fixed 100%, but I can still have a damn good life. Absolutely. And people need to realize that. So for individuals that will say are quote unquote broken, uh, but really for those individuals who are finding themselves where the anxiety has now surpassed being something functional in their lives, now to something that's impeding their lives, what are some of the inpatient and outpatient options that a person in, we'll say Massachusetts, Rhode Island, for instance, would be able to seek for treatment? I always tell people we want to start with the lowest level of care possible. We don't want anything more intensive than we really need. And I'm sure people that are struggling in the moment aren't really able to kind of decipher what's going to help or what's not. They're feeling stuck, they know they need help, and they're asking for it. So that's why I say when you go to your primary care, they're trained in this to refer to the appropriate place. So most would start with an outpatient therapist. Um, a licensed social worker, a licensed mental health counselor that will sit with you usually once a week, individually, and sort through what's happening. For some individuals, they're suffering so greatly that once a week for an hour isn't enough to, to treat their symptoms and they need something a little bit more intensive. And that's where short-term outpatient intensive programs come in. For example, here at Fuller, we have a partial hospitalization program. And, you know, I don't know that everyone in the community really understands what that means because you think partial hospital, oh, I don't want to stay in the hospital. And you don't have to. That's the beauty of it. It is treatment during the day for five or six hours where you receive intensive group and individual therapy to address conditions such as anxiety or depression. So, it's psychoeducational and the fact that you will learn what's actually happening, what the disorder entails, what to expect, and then strategies and coping skills to manage it in your own life. These types of programs usually last one to two weeks. You go home every night and return the following day. The other beauty of the program is you're with people that are also suffering from similar conditions. And sometimes just being with others that are experiencing what you're experiencing and can understand firsthand is comforting and is a great first step to really beginning treatment. So it's interesting that you mentioned the tools, essentially, that a partial hospitalization would be able to provide somebody. What about medication management? So in a partial hospital program, you will see a psychiatrist who may prescribe medications to assist you with your anxiety. But you also need to be careful with medications as well because although it may help deal with the symptoms in the moment, which is a great thing, if you don't deal with the underlying issues in therapy, you're going to be so dependent on these medications forever because you've really never learned any coping skills to get through life to deal with your anxiety. So I think it's really important to have a combination of therapy to understand your disorder and what works for you, as well as medication for when you're not able to control your symptoms with the strategies learned in therapy. So Melissa and Derek, question for you guys. How would somebody who's starting this process find a therapist 
which just for folks that may not even know where to begin there, your first step is always to contact your insurance provider. They'll send you a list of uh, therapists and psychiatrists that are within your network. That's always a great place to start, that little plastic card in your pocket. Uh, but so say you, you get a therapist. What does a therapy session typically look like for those that may not have been to therapy before? Derek, I don't know about your experiences, but I think many people will say no therapist is the same. So there's lots of different psychotherapy models of care, and most therapists tend to adopt one versus the other. Usually therapy sessions start with information gathering. So the therapist really taking the time to understand you, your history, what's worked for you in the past, what's happening now, and what your goals for treatment are. And um, it's nothing like on TV. You know, I get really upset when I watch TV and they'll show psychiatrists or psychologists. I mean, I'm lucky I see a psychiatrist and a psychologist. It's just, you've got to be completely honest or else you're not going to get anything out of it. My psychologist knows me better. I mean, I've been seeing him for 23 years now. And if I had nothing wrong, if I was cured tomorrow, I would still go see him. I don't think you need to be mentally ill to see a psychologist. Sometimes you just need somebody to talk to who has an unadulterated view of your life. And the thing is that if you're dishonest with them, you're not going to get anything out of it. And this is the place to be honest. I've brought friends to my therapy sessions, and I said, I know this may be uncomfortable, but I need your perspective of what I'm like to you or what I don't see and you see when I'm out. So I have brought my bosses in. I have brought friends in. I have brought family in so I can better myself, so I know what I can do to, to better myself. But my therapist has a couch. I don't lay down on it. I sit face to face with him. And one of the biggest things that he taught me was he doesn't just want to see you. Therapists don't want to just see you on your bad days. They want to see you on your good days. They want to see you when 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 you're at the, the lowest of the lows and at the highest of the highs. So they can always, re, you know, hey, remember when you came in three weeks ago, you were high. This is just a, this is peaks and valleys. This is just a short little valley. You're at the peak. So I think being as honest as possible. And then, then when you go to your psychiatrist, um, mine talk to each other and they decide, you know, is, is this med working? Does he need a med change? Is this just a valley? Is this a peak? And that has a lot to do with it because if you show symptoms of really bad depression, but, you know, it's just a valley. I mean, you don't want them adjusting your meds because then it could really set you off. Therapists, like you said, they gather information and it's and the sessions are only as good as how honest you're going to be with them. I'm very, I'm very lucky, but I'm not embarrassed of my situation. And everybody says, you know, oh, you're going to Butler, you must be nuts. Mm. I mean, that's the sad part out there. There should be no, no embarrassment especially as a man, because men feel like they're a lesser person. I just, I don't know why I'm so open about it, but I am. I'd like to break the stigma or be one of those people who break the stigma. I hope these podcasts, if they can help one person, you know, it makes it all worthwhile. This is therapeutic for me because I talk about issues here where they make me think about the past when I was ready to, you know, when I was very uptight and it makes my palms sweat a little bit, but I passed that. You know, so um, and, and hearing hearing you, Melissa, talk about the things, it's great to hear that the way to go about getting help for panic, anxiety and depression is pretty much universally the same. How to go about getting things and fixing things. And for the people out there listening, if you think you're broken, you are broken, but you can be fixed. Now, Derek, in your experience, there's a lot of hard work that goes along with therapy, right? It's more than just 
going once a week for an hour and sitting and talking to someone. I'm sure you've gotten kind of homework to do, things to practice. Some therapists use journals or ask you to keep logs of your anxiety so that you can kind of track and look at what are your triggers, what works, what doesn't, uh, what times of the day do you seem to be more anxious. So it, it's, it's a lot of work on the person getting the therapy as well. And I think that's important to know. It, there's no quick fix. No, there's not. I mean, it took, like I said, it took me about 22 years to really get a hold and make sure that my mental illness did not define me as a person. I would make excuses. My car broke down. You know, I'm sick. How many times can my car break down or can I be sick? And then four years ago on Facebook, I put out a public statement they said, I have something I need to tell all of my friends and anybody on Facebook. I suffer from mental illness. I've been suffering. And it was like a big monkey was lifted off my shoulders. And I got like 300, 400 likes. I had people calling me, telling me that they had anxiety attacks, but they were afraid to come forward. So now there are people who will call me in the middle of the night. I'm having an anxiety attack. Okay, calm down. And I can save them from going to the hospital. I said, unfortunately, but fortunately, I'm a very up on this stuff. When I came out on Facebook about that, it was empowering. That was the time to do it. That was the moment that I knew I had defeated those demons. And even though they may come back, they are not going to haunt me anymore. I'm not going to let them take advantage of me. So coming out was the last thing. Let everybody know, listen, I suffer from mental illness. And then you wouldn't believe how many other people do, but don't get help. So I was able to help those people. Some people knew that I had you know, panic attacks, but they didn't know how bad. So you just come out and you come out and say it and it's going to be what it's going to be. Did I ask for this? No, I got to deal with it. I got to deal with the cards that I was given. And it was tough. Like I said, 20 years worth of tough. And what courage it must have taken for you to kind of out yourself on Facebook. And was that a big step for you to really move into recovering from this? And, and I think that was the last thing. There was something that I felt that I needed to do, and I didn't know what it was. And then February 4th, 2014, I said, you know what? I need to tell people. I need to just be open about this to everybody so they understand. I mean, I lost jobs. I lost friends, family who said I was using it as an excuse not to go out, this, that, and the other thing. And But then there were other people, when I came out, they studied it, and they realized what was going on. So kudos to those people who you know, didn't drop me in a ditch, you know? Um, but the thing is, you make new friends. Right. Were you surprised at some of the people's reactions? Were they different than what you anticipated? I didn't know what to anticipate. It was just to tell people, listen, this is what's been happening. So the excuses in the past, I'm sorry, and I apologize. I said, I'm sorry I had to lie to you, but I was embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. Mental illness does not define me anymore. And I was surprised at the likes and the people saying, you know, congratulations or you're brave. I didn't think of it as brave. I just thought of it as I need to be honest with people now. But I didn't realize how brave it was until afterwards. Um, because to me, I'm a modest person. I didn't think of it as a big deal. It was just it was actually therapeutic for me to get that done. And then to find the other people who say, hey, I have this. Can you can you private message me? Can you call me and let me know? And I got to visit with so many other people. Who are, who are closer friends now than they ever were. Um, but, you know, Facebook was the best platform for it where I could hit the most people. And then I saw that my, my thing was shared. You know, it was shared like three or 400 times. So it got to people who, who didn't know me, you know? And it was just, listen, it was, it was a 
for me, it was a, it was it was a great thing to do, you know. And then I, I followed it up with I wasn't looking for likes, I wasn't looking for sympathy. This wasn't a pity pie. This was just my coming out saying, you know what, I'm good. I was at that side of the tunnel. I saw the light, and I came out the other side. Okay. You know, Derek, I have to say, I'm not surprised at how viral your coming out about your anxiety disorder became. I mean, look at let's look at the statistics that Melissa brought up. 18% or 44 million people are suffering from some sort of anxiety disorder or condition that is impeding their lives. So, you know, you talk about your story, you've essentially are a living example of the positive effects of utilizing tools and medication and education to treat your anxiety, to be able to have a uh, normal functioning life, so to say. When you have anxiety and panic, it's it's what your normal is. Yes. It's different from other people's normal. Um, but this is this is my normal, and I think it's I think it's pretty good from where I think about where I used to be and where I am today. Do I get a little more anxious? Yes. Does it cause an anxiety attack? No. It causes a little more depression. And like I said, you got to put things into perspective. And, and I hope I'm not, you know, taking a lot of time. I, I feel like I'm, I'm talking a lot on this subject, but it's it's one that's been with me for my whole life. So. Um, and what's so impressive is anxiety does not define who you are. Mental illness doesn't define me. It used to. Not anymore. The things that define me now are being able to fight, being able to get up every time I get knocked down. Just being, you know, trying to live my life the way other people would want to live, helping people. You know, I I mean, we're taping this now after a Norisa, and I had gone out and I helped shovel out elderly folks who I put their air conditioners in for. I think it gives you a, a real look into who you are because you've got to deal with some deep issues when you're in therapy with anxiety, depression, and panic. And it, it can really be life-affirming and life-changing and really set you on a on a different on a different angle and you find out what's really important and first and foremost is family your family and but you've got to learn to take care of yourself and know that it's not being selfish because if you don't take care of yourself how are you going to be able to take care of somebody else absolutely so melissa is there anything else you wanted to contribute about anxiety disorders before we wrapped up I think what I really want people to understand is that it's normal to feel anxious and that there is help available and you don't have to suffer alone. All right, so to wrap things up, I think that today's uh, podcast was a really eye-opening experience, both in listening to Melissa give us more of the, the definitions and the facts and explanations and the education around anxiety disorders, but then also hearing Derek's firsthand experience. I think that for our listeners, the key here, or some of the takeaways from our podcast today would be to reach out to your primary care physician if you are struggling with what could be potentially some sort of anxiety issues, to educate yourself, to not be afraid to reach out and utilize um, the tools that are in your community, such as medication management through a psychiatrist or through a partial hospitalization program or a group therapy model, uh, mindfulness, yoga, meditation. There are so many tools and documentation out there that supports ways to address what 44 million people in this country are dealing with. 
So thank you, Melissa, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, we always want to talk about this podcast and remember that no one is alone in the fight. You just need to find the right people. But you're never going to be alone in, in your fight against mental illness. And um, Carrie's got some some great contact numbers and referral numbers to give you folks out there and a place to ask questions. So Carrie, if you want to shoot those out to the folks. So for anybody who is listening to this podcast and they live in the Attleboro, Massachusetts or the greater Attleboro, Massachusetts area, or in fact, honestly, anywhere in the state of Massachusetts or Rhode Island, um, we welcome you to a, a great opportunity to access resources in person once a month at our You Are Not Alone drop-in center. It's located at 505 North Main Street in uh, Attleboro, Massachusetts. That's the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church. It's the last Wednesday of every month from 5.30 to 8. We um, are able to offer direct community resources from every level of care, from inpatient needs, such as a fuller hospital, to outpatient needs, to community groups to support those who are affected by or who have loved ones that are affected by mental illness, substance abuse or use, and also um, domestic violence. We also offer free Narcan training, and we have clinicians on hand to speak with you if you're seeking voluntary treatment. For more information on the You Are Not Alone drop-in center, you can go to Facebook and type in at Attleboro Recovery, and you can follow us or message us on our Facebook page. You can also contact our people-oriented policing team at 508-222-1212, extension 1951 here in Attleboro. They're more than happy to help guide you um, on any of the resources that are present at the You Are Not Alone drop-in center or additional resources in our community. And of course, there's Fuller Hospital here in Attleboro. Um, we uh, serve both the Massachusetts and Rhode Island communities. We are, offer inpatient and outpatient services. I know we spoke a little bit about our partial hospitalization program today. Um, I can't emphasize enough what an absolute tool that can be for individuals who don't want to necessarily reach a level of crisis in their lives where they are a safety or a danger to themselves or somebody else or are unable to function. And so if you have any questions about our services, please contact me directly, Carrie Ballou, at 508-761-8500, and my extension is 2354. I can also be emailed at carrie.ballou at uhsinc.com. And of course, if you're having some sort of medical crisis or emergency, please go to your local ER or dial 911. Last but not least, uh, we are here, are absolutely open to hearing your feedback and your questions about any of the topics uh, that we uh, promote here on our podcast and discuss and any feedback that you may have. So you can reach out to us directly, Derek or myself, at mentalillness at WARARadio.com. Thank you again for joining us today. I'm Carrie Ballou, Community Relations Coordinator at Arbor Fuller Hospital. And we'd like to also thank Melissa Holcomb, Masters in uh, Social Work, Director of Clinical Services here at uh, Fuller Hospital. And uh, my name is Derek Mulhan. And until next time, uh, folks, uh, be well.
The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.